Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, May 4th, 2020. On the show today, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim tells us the history of the classic Fantasyland attraction, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Let's get started by bringing in the man who wonders whether bologna is just hot dog pancakes. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Well, would that I could make pancakes, Len. Are you aware of the flour situation? I'm actually hoarding flour right now, Jim, and I had to uh, I had to trade uh, or barter with someone for yeast. Okay. Well, I was lucky enough that Alice went through a bread-making phase while she was out visiting us last year. So yeah. I have the yeast, but it took me... God, I must have gone to three or four different stores, all of them wearing my mask, yeah. until I finally found flour. And even then, it was like, I damn near went with coconut flour and almond flour before I finally found this one lonely bag toward the back and carried it out like it was a foundling. It's like, <laughs> it's mine. It's a, of all purpose flour. You know what I can't find? Uh, cake flour. Like the really um, fine. I guess you can make it just by, uh, by throwing okay. it in a blender and stuff. But speaking of baking, Jim... I made one of the biggest mistakes last weekend that you can possibly make in quarantine, Jim. I found a recipe for homemade Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh. <laughs> so I made the first dozen. So these are these are a, a, a yeasted, fluffy donut. Very airy, very light. Wow. I made a dozen and they came out perfect. The dozen were gone, Jim, within six hours. That's between Laurel and I. And then I made a second okay. dozen. And that's when I started to realize I had a problem, Jim. <laughs> like, like, I can't. <laughs> like, I, needed, I need to put this away. I can't, I can't do this. Glad if you thought you had a problem before, you've just told the world you know how to make Krispy Kreme donuts. Uh, have you seen any George Romero movies? <laughs> right, exactly. <You> know? <laughs> they yeah, were. Instead of brains, it's like Krispy Kreme. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, they were yeah. just like one bite into the first one. You're like. It was so good, you knew it was bad. I, I once had, uh, when I had my wisdom teeth out, they gave me Percocet for painkillers. And Percocet yeah. is how I realized how people get addicted to opioids. Like, oh, like that was pleasant. Yes. That was really nice, you know, for, for a couple of days. But um, it's the same thing now with these donuts. Like, these donuts are why I can't make donuts. Like, this is not, okay. this is not that. Well, the, the first part of dealing with a problem, Len, is recognizing that you have a problem. Yeah. So congratulations. I'll see you to the meeting. So, okay. <laughs> exactly. you know, the donut addiction meeting, you have to wait till the Alcoholic Anonymous meeting clears out because they have donuts. They have donuts. <laughs> yeah, you got to clear all that out before you go. Yeah, it was scary, Jim. In any event. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on. Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, S. Timmons, JPM, and Alexis P, and longtime subscribers Jeremy H, Mago Vejo, and Ross and Jim. The rumor is that these folks are such fans of the original Journey into Imagination ride that they have exact replicas of the old Imageworks Rainbow Tunnel in their homes. It makes asking for directions to the bathroom more interesting, and it's a nice conversation piece. This reminds me, uh, just this week, like everybody else on the planet, I've been watching YouTube, and somebody put up a video of it was, I guess at Epcot, the Ralph breaks the internet meet and greet that was set up, and it has a, a weird sort of faux recreation of 
the Journey into Imagination Rainbow Tunnel. Really? Yeah, they had the two cast members who were playing Ralph and Vanellope getting ready to finish their meet and greet. So what they typically do is they exit into the internet. And the poor cast member who was wearing Vanellope's outfit didn't see the edge of the door. And so you see her revving herself up. And then she goes to run back into the internet and she trips and falls in such a spectacular fashion. Thankfully, she retained all of her body parts and was able to get up and quickly exit. But it's like, Ralph was of no help. We've talked about this. He has giant arms, but can't do anything with them. Can't do anything with them. Speaking of uh, of YouTube videos, Jim, I was watching a YouTube video from 1991 named uh, A Day at Epcot Center. And one of the things that it showed was these giant blow-up dolls in front of the World Showcase countries. And the afternoon show in World Showcase Lagoon was Surprise in the Skies. Was were those two things related? These were blow-up dolls, like actual dolls. Huge, dolls, like right? like air inflated, like three stories tall. Like the one in front of England was of Robin Hood. I think Mickey was in front of the United States Pavilion. But they were huge inflatable things circa 1991 what, what were they gotta remember that there was this cultural imperative coming down from eisner's like cram the characters into epcot and thing of surprise in the skies is as the show ended there were these giant square boxes right that would get rolled down on stage and then they'd fire up the cold air things and sure enough you'd get these giant versions of the characters what's interesting is this was also during the period when, you know, the very first contract that Disney had with McDonald's. You can go on eBay now and chase down a bunch of Happy Meal toys that recreate these characters that you saw looming out of these giant boxes. Oh, I didn't do that. I don't know if they showed the one for the inflatable Chip and Dale, where they're basically standing on top of one another dressed in outfits, rather badly caricatured outfits for China. It's both an unfortunate costume choice and a really unfortunate pose, Mm. but don't take my word for it. Go take a look at it. All right. We'll do that. Uh, So folks, the video on YouTube is titled A Day at Epcot Center 1991. Just type that in and uh, you'll be able to see it. There's a similar one for the Magic Kingdom as well. Mm. All right, folks, let's do listener questions. We have a bunch of them from the last episode. Mm -hmm. Super Dude Ron A. writes in with, I saw where Walt Disney World is going to require online check-in for resorts when they reopen. What would you think if they required park visitors? to make an online reservation for the day they plan to be there. That would give Disney a lot of insight on demand and also allow them to control the number of gets they allow through the gates. Seems like something they might try at least initially. So, Jim, the uh, online check-in I think is smart because you avoid face-to-face contact at the front desk. Mm -hmm. That that kind of makes sense. But the idea of a reservation for the day that they plan to be in the park also interesting. And it, let me start by, by prefacing with, with this. You saw the uh, the guidelines that, that Orange County in Florida put out. Yes, yeah. yes. Just over like the last 48 hours. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in phase one for theme parks, they're limited to 20, uh, 50% of capacity? Yeah. That's the starting point with the hope of eventually getting to 75. 75% so. of capacity. And here, as soon as they said 50% of capacity, we got a number of emails. Or I got a number of emails saying... of what capacity? And the the point is, is this. The Magic Kingdom can hold around 90,000 people, right? Mm -hmm. And in 90,000 people, that's pretty pretty well crammed in there. So 50% of that would be 45,000. Well, the Magic Kingdom averages 57,000 people, 58,000 people in a given day. Now, granted, 
some of those people leave before others come in, right? So let's say mm-hmm. for kicks, 25% of them leave before others come in, right? So the, not all 57,000 people are in the park at the same time. That would mean that, that on, a, on an average day, there are somewhere around 42,000 people in the Magic Kingdom at any given time. Well, if the park capacity is 45,000 or half the, half the park capacity is 45,000, that means that the Magic Kingdom can operate as it normally does under the first version of Orange County's restrictions for an average day. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like much of a restriction, does it? No, it doesn't. So I, I, I think there's some fine tuning that has to happen on that one. Oh, no doubt. Anybody who's smart enough to read the unofficial guide and follow a touring plan isn't one of those folks who's right up by the rope drop. But think about how many things that people think of as a part of their Disney World vacation, yep. getting to the park early and being you know one of those families that's right up by the rope drop along with the rest of the crowd. Yep. It's like... That's not going to happen. No. Disney's got to figure out a way to not make that happen. Yeah. So how do you do that? What's the new procedure for opening the park for the day? Yeah, because they won't be able to. Uh, they won't be able to do the traditional uh, rope drop that they do. And in fact, they uh, they really can't crowd that many people in in front of the uh, the train station. Now, for the Magic Kingdom, though, the thing they've been doing for the last couple of years, where they let people onto Main Street, we say mm-hmm. an hour before the park opens. I think that makes a lot of sense. You can spread things out. So we'll see that. But at the same time, how do you do social distancing when you're, you're, that's your holding pen? Right. So, so for, for people who, uh, right now, for people who don't have fast passes to Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, what they do is they, they congregate on that pathway that goes to the right of the castle and then heads back towards Mad Tea Party. And at any given time, there's roughly a thousand people on that pathway. Well, now if you need six feet between, you know, groups, mm-hmm. You can't fit as many people. So what do they do then? Now, they could always extend it farther down, right? So they've got space to play with. But yeah, I don't know that limiting the Magic Kingdom attendance to 50% of its actual capacity is much of a change from a normal day in the Magic Kingdom. No. Right? So that means that we'll probably see it be like 25%, my guess is. Okay. What do you think about the idea of uh, doing reservations for the day they plan to be there in a park? I've got the same questions from folks and it's just sort of like, I can't help but think to our last show where you were talking about just getting people into the park. And and for example, you know, the idea you floated about what creating, changing the bus drop off area, basically to the Bay Lake towers. Yeah. Closed down Bay Lake. And having, but it's, you know, the whole notion of if you have a line that extends all that, all the way back there with social distancing, Mm -hmm. what's the new check-in procedure. I mean, for example, didn't they talk as part of this this Orange County thing about temperature checks? Yeah. Adding that additional step in there along with bag check. Well, they don't have to do them all at the same place, right? They could do them they could do them in line. I mean, you could have somebody walking through the line and doing temperature checks. Ooh, but think about that, Len. If you are if you and your family are standing on that sidewalk, you you're a half hour in from getting off the bus at Bay Lake Towers, mm-hmm. and then suddenly at that point, you've got a cast member going, ooh, we need to take you out of line. And yeah. that walkway is barely two people wide. It's true. You know, let alone thousands upon thousands. Of, I mean- Well, it, that, that's why I think that's why I think the, uh, the walkway um, would only be for exit. And I think for uh, entrance, 
is if they shut down the Magic Kingdom bus stop, you could actually route people. Oh, that's, I'm sorry. That's an excellent point. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. That would probably be. That's a ton of space. You know, the smarter play. Yeah. Or uh, I, I asked a guy to look at uh, how they might use the space in the Magic Kingdom. And that's what he came up with. I okay. thought it was really useful. Okay. Great insight on his part. Onto another question. The always bubbly Robert writes, I've done some research online and find spotty articles about the research that actually gets performed at the land pavilion in Epcot. During the ride, uh, Living with the Land, it says that the U.S. Department of Agriculture does work there. My question is, is one, does research actually get performed there? And two, is Living with the Land the kind of ride that will continue for the next 10 or 20 years? So let's start with that, that second question first, Jim, because Laurel and I were watching that day in Epcot video on YouTube. One of the things that I told Laurel was the land pavilion is arguably the most successful pavilion in all of Epcot in that it's been consistently good the longest mm-hmm. and has changed among the least of the pavilions. So I think it's better than the seas. I mean, the seas has been around for a long mm-hmm. time, but I think the land is a better pavilion. Imagination has obviously changed 16 times and isn't as good as, <laughs> as the land. Uh, World of Motion and Test Track uh, have mm-hmm. changed. Horizons Rip and Mission Space better than the land i'm not entirely sure wonders of life no longer exists so really you've got spaceship earth that's been touched so many times right. at this point the message there has gotten foggy and in fact that's, that's supposedly what this latest update where it was going to shift to storytelling was going to be about try to refocus what the story that was being told there right. but I love how you're you're conveniently having a blind spot in regard to food rocks or, or for that matter, the kitchen cabaret, which my ex, Michelle, her, her now husband, Noah, is going online and chasing down all of the plush that was made for oh, uh, kitchen really? cabaret. And my initial question was, why? Why? First question, why? <laughs> okay. You know, a lot of us wake up screaming. A lot of us spend a lot of time and money on therapy to get rid of those images, Jim. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but whatever it takes. But now, yeah. a question, will it continue to operate For the like next 10 or 20 years? It's, 20 years. It's, it's gone, what? Uh, Living with Lynn is an original attraction, right? So it's gone 40. Will it go 10? Oh, I, I think 10 is a no-brainer. Yes, obviously yeah, 10. Yeah, And Bob Chapek has already been pushing the more Disney, more relevant, that sort of thing. But at the same time, you have to respect that Epcot has its its educational roots. And yeah. so it's like, it's kind of a no-brainer to leave at least living with the land in place. And yeah. my understanding is that, that Disney is regularly doing outreach to colleges and universities around the country looking for quote-unquote safe experiments to do in that five-acre farm space back there. Nothing having to do with uh, dinosaur DNA, is that what you're saying, Jim? That's it, exactly. Because, you know, you hate to lose a boatload of tourists. <laughs> right? Oh, fine. We're not going to recreate dinosaurs. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay. I mean, what's the, what's the point of having billions and billions of dollars if you don't attempt that? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, Jim. <laughs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, it's it's nice to know you have a hobby along with the bread making. <laughs> okay. While the bed's breaking, I'll be over here working with the DNA. So, okay. Again, this is why they don't let me let me play the lottery, Jim, because they know what would happen if I won. All right. Let's go on to the, uh, the next question. This is from the always adorable Fuzz. Jim, what's the history of the crossroads of Lake Buena Vista, and is it still slated to be a casualty of I-5? 
for. All right, so we the history of Crossroads is probably not a listener question. That's a show. But the second part of it, is it still slated to be a casualty of I-4? Just this week, somebody posted pictures on uh, Twitter to the effect of, hey, when did Goodings close? Oh, yeah, a couple weeks, uh, last week, right? Two weeks ago. Yeah, they drove over there. And <laughs> you can understand, given that the hotels are closed, and that, yes, there are people who live in the immediate vicinity. In fact, the, the old uh, apartment complex I, I used to live in was just up the street from there. But, yeah, that this has been that off-ramp that was supposed to go straight into Disney Springs is still on the transportation plan for the expansion of I-4 and including those those toll roads. Mm -hmm. But because that project had slid so far behind schedule, it was it went from, I want to say it was supposed to be closed and to be then plowed under a year or so ago. And I, I guess at this point, maybe they're finally getting up to the point of the construction where this is back on again. But yeah, that is still the transportation plan. I mean, Disney would love this feeder ramp that would take people straight in, into Hotel Plaza and to a lesser extent send them right into Disney Springs. So it's still coming. But it? unfortunately, like I grew up in, in New England during the big dig, which was only supposed to take two, three years and took 17. Yeah, I, I remember when uh, when when the, it opened in USA Today uh, did a thing. It was like, yeah, for you know, this paper didn't exist when this dig started. <laughs> and, you know, like... <laughs> For those of us who, who lived in it around Boston, we just find it adorable that, oh, Orlando, yes, that's going to be done in two and three years. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, sure have a good time. Sure Children will. who aren't even born yet will be going to college by the time this thing, you know, manages to make it out to Poinciana. So have a good time. That's funny. All right. On to the, uh, the next question. Uh, the delightful Sue writes in and says, I listened to the last show. I have to agree with most of the suggestions until you got to the gloves. This is for me. Gloves only work mm -hmm. if you change them after every encounter. Think about it, Len. When used in a hospital, even your dentist, once that doc touches something they shouldn't, off come the gloves and the new pair go on. Oh, oh, maybe I'm going to the wrong doctor. Keeping gloves on for any <laughs> period of time and people inadvertently touch your face, there are germs. I think if they posted a cast member in front of every ride with hand sanitizers like they do on the cruise when you go to dinner, it would be far more effective. There could be another cast member at the exit doing the same thing. So we had a lot of variations on this, Jim, uh, around my point about wearing gloves. And I, I want, and they're all good points. I wanted to clarify one thing. When I was saying that I think gloves are useful, it's not gloves instead of other things. It was gloves with everything else. And and so here's the you – know, so like gloves plus sanitizers, right? And here's the thing I was going for, right? If you're, if you're not wearing gloves, it's hard to tell when the last time a person washed their hands was. Right, because you're not wearing anything, right? And your hands are hands; you can't tell. But if you're wearing gloves, and especially if the gloves are color coded to a specific time of day, you can easily tell at least the last time at which those gloves were changed. So it's more of a visual indicator that somebody did something at least within the last some number of hours, as opposed to just assuming that everyone with bare hands is going to wash them. So it was an additional measure, not an in place of measures. Oh, that makes no sense. Doubt. Yeah. But one of the reasons you mentioned glove is, you know, it's part of the guidance we've been receiving is yep. gloves and masks and, you know, and don't touch your face and wash your hands. And it just, yep. and the, you know, the problem is we're in this real time moment where it's like when I was a kid and we went from 
okay, dinosaurs are cold-blooded, and by the way, that one's called a brontosaurus. No, wait a minute, dinosaurs are warm-blooded, and that one's called an apatosaurus. Wait a minute, did I tell you they have feathers? You know, and it's just sort of like, it's like, wait a minute, you know, can, can there be one set of rules? And it's like, no, it's evolving. All of this is evolving. Keep up. I had friends in the, uh, in the healthcare industry who's actually in hospitals during this, and mm-hmm. they said when the uh, virus effects started to really ramp up and they started to see a lot of people you know, coming into mm-hmm. the hospital, they were getting new procedures every couple of hours, like latest yeah. memo, here's what to do. And I think it's only natural to expect that for theme parks, right? We're going to mm-hmm. open with one set of expectations and then things are going to be fine-tuned. Okay. Right? Well, you know, it, it, again, but just in case this glove thing continues, I have got this box of wonderful, you know, elbow-length uh, opera gloves. I'm waiting, Len. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait to get to the parks and be elegant. <laughs> we had a listener, uh, Kevin, write in too, who said, uh, Kevin, op- Kevin runs in a, a bakery. Uh, he wrote in, he said, in my bakery, it's hot and we have to change gloves often to handle the sweatiness that happens. And in Florida, people would be doomed. It'd be like wearing little greenhouses on your hands. I just don't think gloves are a practical solution for guests. They're more reasonable for cast members to wear and to change out often. So that's a, that's an interesting thing. there. And uh, Kevin also pointed out that instead of having the cast members cleaning everything, you could hand everyone uh, sanitizer wipes as they board the rides. So make it the guest responsibility and not the cast member responsibility. That's an interesting idea. It is. You have to you have to trust the guests more than you trust the cast members. I'm just imagining that at the end of the day, the Pirates of the Caribbean Lagoon would be very interesting. The poor slob who has to clean off all of the wipes that oh, less than thoughtful yeah. guests heaved into the water. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. You have, to, you have to account for the best of humanity and the worst of humanity because they both go to theme parks. So. Yeah, it's true. It's a uh, there's a bell curve of behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. All right, uh, this one from the fabulous Ben. Uh, there's an article that says that virtual queues will not be possible in Walt Disney World because the park can't hold that many people in common areas. For example, those that need 90 minute lines. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, the Disney Dish has spent some time on this topic with Rise of the Resistance. Thanks, and I always look forward to new episodes. So, can you fit a 90 minute line? I just heard from a friend, and they're going ride by ride, Lynn. And take, for example, Space Mountain. You remember that space that got cleared out when they they pulled down the Skyway station? And so there's the restroom, there's a set of faux mechanical palm trees and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And they've gone in, they've measured, and you have to create these basically six-foot square boxes and then create a queue that way. And have and enough room for it to turn and enough room for people to get access to the restroom. And it's just sort of like, yeah, we think back there we, we can create space. And, you know, and, and taking into account the interior space of Space Mountain, it's like, I, we think that ride's good. But then you, you look at things like, for example, Pirates of the Caribbean with, with the Caribbean Plaza. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, geez, we have the pinch point of, of going into Frontierland. And there's also the space for around Enchanted Tiki Room. And there's supposedly a plan where you have to triage. And it's one mm-hmm. of these things. Pirates is hugely popular. There's going to be an enormous line. No question. Enchanted Tiki Room is less popular. So what if you were to actually shut down Tiki, but create queue space that, you know, for pirates that went through, literally went through the queue uh, for Enchanted Tiki Room into the attraction itself and out the door, out oh, the exit. And that, uh, the thing with the queue at Enchanted Tiki Room is it's got that, what, three or four tiers 
of there cubes you where you could leave the middle one empty. Oh, yeah. Plus, it's also covered. You get air conditioning covering, you know, Florida weather, that sort of thing. But it, it now becomes a question of you have Small World right across from Peter Pan Flight, two of the most popular attractions in Fantasyland, who right. you know typically have huge lines. Who goes down? Which one of those do you operate? And if you compare the hourly ride capacity of Small World versus Peter Pan, it's like, it seems like a no-brainer. You know, you go with Small World, but then you have to take into consideration the very thing you were talking about on the last show, that, you know, in order to observe social distancing, you're literally keeping at least two rows on each boat empty. Right. And that tanks what Small World's capacity was. I mean, there's a lot of folks like you who are very good at math <laughs> are trying to figure out what's the sensible decision here and what's going to deliver at least an acceptable version of a Walt Disney World vacation experience. And I think that's the uh, that's the challenge. You can make things, uh, you know, you could design safety margins into all of the experiences. You can put in hand sanitizers and masks. Mm -hmm. The big question at the end of the day is, is this going to be worth the, you know, $500 a day in admission plus mm -hmm. whatever I have to, to pay to get there? Is, is the experience of it worth the money? And that's the, that's going to be the the other tricky part, right? It, once you get past all the math involved mm -hmm. in the queues and things like that, you still have to provide an experience that worth, that's worth the money. So that's a, that's a big question. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, a couple more, a couple more listener questions here, Jim. Uh, the always ebullient Alex writes in to say, "My first time writer, a long time listener, still waiting for Jim to finish his Light Magic series." Jim, is that a, that's, a, that's a joke, I guess. No, that's the 25th anniversary coming, <laughs> coming up next, next year. Right. I, I'm going to do it, folks. I, I, I swear <laughs> to God, I had to wait for a couple people to die to tell some of these stories. <laughs> and you didn't want to, you didn't want to hurry that along in any way, right? I, uh, you know, yeah. you know, just, just definitive, Len. Definitive. <laughs> okay, so. all right. Here's a question about reopening the parks. I know everything's up in the air, but in the last show, when discussing Universal Survey about reopening, you briefly mentioned Christmas crowds. Has there been any discussion that you know about? of about how Disney is planning to handle Christmas crowds with social distancing restrictions. It's one thing to talk about distancing measures in a park with August or September crowds, but another thing altogether when the crowds are uh, usually at the, uh, the way the crowds usually are at the parks the week between Christmas and New Year. Yeah. So remember we talked phase one is 50% of capacity for the parks. Phase two is 75%. I guess the, the third phase would be a hundred percent of capacity and they would need to get to that by Christmas. If they don't, and let's say that we're in, uh, you know, phase two, 75%. The thing that you would see at Christmas is basically what happens in the Magic Kingdom on very crowded days. They would direct people to other parks, right? Yeah. You got to remember that when you talk Christmas at Disney World, you have to talk all of Christmas. The company spent just shy of a billion on the redo of Disney Springs. So I have this amazing new retail dining entertainment space. Yep. And especially during the holiday season is hopping. And so you had people already working on the Christmas tree lane experience for oh, really? the coming year. Because the folks who handle the holiday decorations at the park never stopped, whether it's it's working on the Halloween stuff or the, the Christmas stuff. So they were already working because that's that's a highly successful element over there, Len, for Disney Springs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the combination of this is where you go to have your picture taken with Santa and then you, you know, can walk through and look at the Disney themed Christmas trees. And for those folks, it's literally stop work. We have no idea how we do that with social distancing. 
we may be a couple of years before we circle back to this idea. Because it's just, how do we do all of Disney Springs with normal day-to-day operations? Right. With social distancing, never mind how we do it with holiday crowds. And certainly something like this, that would be an artificial draw for holiday crowds. It's like, no, 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 that, that's, that's off the table for right now. Just let's, let's, first we have to figure out how to operate this place. And then once we get, you know, maybe if there, when there's a COVID treatment plan, which you know, they were just talking about yesterday, Maybe then we can talk. But that's the other thing people need to prepare for is that there's just going to be a lot of stuff that they that people love yep. about going to the resort that that's just off the table for a while. And that's fine. I think I think we'll understand things like that. And uh, you know, for me, if we have if we have the resorts, most of the resorts, if we have most of what's in the parks and most mm-hmm. of Disney Springs, that that would be good enough right now. Mm-hmm. Like for me, so we'll the the other stuff, you know, like the nice to have stuff at Disney Springs. You know, I, I don't know that I would necessarily miss the Christmas tree thing. By the way, uh, Jim, did you notice in um, the Orange County guidelines where they they said that retail and restaurants can open up with restrictions? Does that mean Disney Springs mm. can open up? That is the sixty four dollar question mm. because it's like, how do you do that? Because mm-hmm. remember, you know, the, what Governor DeSantis has initially talked about is that first Florida opens up for locals. You know, the notion is right. that people have an in-state vacation. So it's it's only folks who live in Orange and Osceola County that would be going over to Disney Springs. And, you know, the thinking is, okay, so that might be manageable. I think the very thing we were talking about on the last show, you have to, example, you know, for example, persuade people who are collecting unemployment who typically work for tips that, Look, if you come back to work, you know, you will make your equivalent salary. Yeah, you're, that's, that's a good point because right now under uh, the CARES Act, you get $600 a week in unemployment. So the big question for a lot of businesses is, will my employees make more money if I open or on, on unemployment? That, that, for, for restaurants especially, that's a, that's a huge consideration because you can't open and, and have everybody be worse, you know, have your employees be worse off. Not going to work. That's an important consideration as well. I know people are asking questions that they want definitive answers yeah, to. It's, and it's like, you know, the situation is evolving in real time. Len and I will probably finish recording the show. It'll be a brand new rule <laughs> that's just come down the pike. <laughs> you know, yes, put on gloves and, you know, and a mask and say, Mother, may I? Exactly. All right. One last uh, question. This one's from the super smart Sarah who writes in with a suggestion. She says, I love the Disney Dish podcast. And in listening to your recent episode discussing the survey, Senate regarding what folks would be comfortable with in terms of theme park reopening. I have an idea. What if theme parks offered a reduced price ticket that was valid for one of two shifts of guests in a single day? For example, let's say the Magic Kingdom operating hours were 7 a.m. until 2 p.m. And then uh, again from 5 p.m. until midnight. The parks would close for a three-hour sanitizing period from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. And then be sanitized and maintained again from midnight to 7 a.m. So I don't know if we talked about talked about it on the show, Jim, but I think that that's actually a really interesting idea. You get what seven hours in the park? I don't know if you saw this thing that erupted online last week and got traction, where basically it was somebody talking about, well, you know, because they're you know the parks are shut down and they're not servicing the motors of you know the figures for Small World or Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. you know that when they go to fire them up, nothing's going to work, and you know and that's going to send Disney over the abyss. And it's like no, 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 <laughs> they. They, you know, there are still people in the park. There's still people feeding the animals at Animal Kingdom. And we've talked about this with 
extra magic nights and extra magic mornings, how it, it creeps in on the maintenance time that they actually need at the parks. Right. Especially now where the very thing that Sarah talks about here, where you need that sanitizing period, you need that before you open and after you close as well. So not saying that there isn't a valid idea in here. In fact, you know, when you think about how good Disney is right now on the days when they're presenting either Mickey's Not So Scary or Mickey's Very Merry, how they're, they were effectively able to sweep the park of people who are not wearing the right wristband. Mm-hmm. So maybe the folks who come in in the morning would have a red wristband and those who were supposed to be there in the afternoon or, you know, the, the late afternoon at the evening portion would have a different color. But I, I think there's a, there's a concept here, but... Again, to, to circle back to basically our first question we could ask, what is workable reduced capacity? Right. And not just for the Magic Kingdom. You've got to think about this for, for the studios. You've got to think about this. And the people who are having the most agita when it comes to how do we operate this part of our theme park, think about how the hell are you going to do social distancing land in Toy Story Land? Yeah, I it's a small land to begin with. Yeah. The, the good news is that the queue for Slinky Dog is is mostly outside. That's true. But if you start breaking that into six-foot safety zones, so to speak. Yeah. The 50 people that you can fit in Toy Story Land, is that what you're saying? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us the story of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And in true Jim Hill epic fashion, it begins with Germany invading Poland. We'll be right back. All right. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We are talking about the history of one of my favorite all-time rides. I'm still glad it, uh, it exists in Disneyland. It's Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Jim, why don't you tell us where this all began? And, and here's my here's my here's the question, right, that I have. Mm-hmm. Mr. Toad is not one of the classic Disney characters. So, like, how did we even end up with Mr. Toad as a character? We have to jump back to Snow White being released in 37. Mm-hmm. It goes wide in February of 38 and is this immense success. I mean, this, this, this tsunami of money pours into the Walt Disney Company. Mm-hmm. And based on this, Walt at this point had kind of figured out, okay, we do shorts and you know, we'll do a feature once every two years. And you know, you got to walk before you can run. And, you know, and Snow White is this massive hit. So it's like, okay. That plan, forget about it. You know, we're going to go aggressively expand. We're going to go, you know, our goal now is two animated features out every year. And two every year. Two every year. So the animators are drawing with each hand, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, more to the point, you know, you now need to put product in the pipeline. And so, you know, it's April of 38 and Disney is aggressively now grabbing individuals books and stories and you know that this is when the, the film rights for Bambi get grabbed this is when Pinocchio and in April of this year this is when Disney acquires the rights to Kenneth Graham's children's story from 1908 The Wind in the Willows 
the problem is that this is also happening. What's going on in the real world just a few weeks before they, they close the deal on Wind of the Willows is Germany annexes Czechoslovakia, which, which effectively launches the war, uh, the war in Europe. I mean, a lot of people would argue that it wasn't until September of 39 when Germany invades Poland that, you mm -hmm. know, okay, World War II is now underway. But what's happening, of course, is that is you know Czechoslovakia falls, and then Poland. People are fleeing. People are, are running to safety, or uh, you know. So movie, th you know, the movie theaters are, are shuttering. There, there are a few places to show these movies, and the people left behind don't you, you know eat the money that they normally spend on movie tickets or things like food, you know, or right. or tickets out of the country. But Walt is proceeding with this aggressive two-film-a-year plan. So February of 1940, he opens his brand-new $2 million state-of-the-art animation facility in Burbank. Later that same month, Pinocchio opens, and it gets great reviews. Uh, but again, because all of the theaters in Europe are basically shuttered at this point, it actually loses a million dollars. Oh. And right. then to add insult to injury, because this is the first year that Walt pulled it off. He's got two movies out in theaters in one calendar year. But the second movie is Fantasia. And uh, it's the version that you and I talked about at length with the whole Fantasound. sound. Fanta sound that, yeah. You know, the custom sound system, right? Yeah. They, and it can only be set up in certain theaters. And there are only 10 markets in the country showing this. And so Fantasia manages to lose more money than Pinocchio. Oof. Meanwhile, April of 41, after much debate over the story and how to go at it, they begin animation in a feature-length version of Wind in the Willows. Okay, and, and Wind in the Willows is Mr. Toad, right? There's a there, there are characters in it. There's a toad, a, a mole. What else? Uh, there's there's Ratty and there's Angus McBadger. Okay, my Badger, personal okay. favorite. And they're and they're English, right? So these are the characters. They're very English. The thing of this story is it's this affectionate look back at Edwardian England, and so there are you know there are people out on the Thames punting in boats and drinking tea and being very civilized. And Walt initially, when they came at him with this Kenneth Graham book, read it. And Len, it says a lot when Walt Disney reads the story and goes, wow, that's awfully corny. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you think right. when Walt, who prided himself on the, the whole, for every laugh, there is a tear. His take on storytelling, it's like, wow. But, but his animators are like, no, 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 look at the characters. It's a rat. It's a mole. It's a toad. It's a, you know. It's a, merchandise. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, he reluctantly goes forward with this thing. But it, it starts animation in 41. But this, remember, the, the, that's April. By the end of May 1941, this is when the infamous Disney's animator strike happens. Last oh, right. five weeks, Len, that the only way it's resolved is they bring in federal mediation. And literally, Disney Studios is never the same after this. And then October 41, the Bank of America is looking at, you know, the looming war in Europe and Asia. And here's Walt, you know, and we'll, we'll need some more money for the movies we're making. And they're like, you know, no. We're going to put a cap. We've extended quite a lot of money to you. At this point, it was $3.5 million. And we'll keep the spigot open, but you have to put some new big business practices in, in, in place. And among those is you can't develop any new animated features until the ones you have in the pipeline are completed. We, we feel like we've been examining your business practices and maybe you need to sort of keep your eye on the ball a little bit more. 
Walt, who literally had just returned from the famous El Grupo goodwill tour to South, South America, it's like, what choice do I have? Sure. And it, he's lucky he agreed when he did, because, of course, December 7th, 1941, mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, and we're plunged into World War II. It's now January of 42, and Disney Studios is now being off, you know, it's literally being occupied by the Army Signal Corps, because they're defending the Lockheed plant down the street. Oh, right. Okay. And, yeah. And so Walt now has to show a badge to get onto his own lot, and he's losing all sorts of resources and men to the war. And so he has to cold-bloodedly look at everything that's in production. And remember, this is a guy who is never that enthusiastic about war, Wind in the Willows, and just looks at it and goes, this is the wrong film at the wrong time. If we bring out this gentle English fantasy in the middle of the war when Britain's dealing with the Blitz, it's, it's just so he, he literally he just puts it on the shelf. It's like, stop production. We're putting it on the shelf. And, you know, we don't need to get into the whole Walt makes training films to, you know, so his studio survives the war. Just we'll, we'll just jump ahead to May of 45. It's VE Day. The German surrender. August of 45. VJ Day. You know, the Japanese surrender. People start to try to get back to normal. I've been talking with friends about, especially who are concerned about the pandemic. It's like, that's when we should be looking at. What was it like in 45, 46 when, you know, people came home for the war and we all stopped doing, you know, the women stopped going to the factories to make bombers. You know, what was that like? Right. So in 46, Walt is now going through everything the studio had in production that they tabled. And he's he's looking at Wind of the Willows, and you know, you got to remember they got about a half hour's worth of animation completed before they put the film up on the shelf. And Walt looks at the material, and he still is not overly confident in it. But he's like, I don't want to waste this. I spent so much money, and Bank of America is breathing down my neck. So it's like, all right, what if we take what was supposed to be a feature length project? And say, group it with something else, you know, make it into, a, you know, a package feature, sort of like the Saludos Amigos or Make My Music. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for a time, Walt looks at, you know, they had that Mickey and the Beanstalk, which was also supposed to be a feature length project. And it's like, all right, well, what if we do the same thing? We just, you know, we take the half hour of animation we did for Mickey. We take the half hour we did for Wind of the Willows and put that together. Eh, not a good fit. But then... He has, Walt has all of this work that Roald Dahl did for the studios during the war, that Gremlins movie that they were supposed to make. But, you know, that was all about the Gremlins who were, would eat the bolts out of the planes that the RA, that the RAF was using against the Germans. And it's like, okay, war's over. I don't think anyone's interested in this story, but they try for a while to, to make that work. And, and nobody outside of Walt likes this idea. And then finally, in 47, they go, okay, making the beanstalk, let's put that together with Bongo. And Walt is just looking cold-bloodedly at the Wind in the Willows footage, and it's like, look, it's got these high-action scenes of Toad crashing through the English countryside with Cyril the Horse, and him on the train escaping from the Tower of London, and the fight for the deed at Toad Hall. So I should be pairing this with something else that has high-action scenes. And coincidentally, starting in in late 46, because Walt is looking at the mood of the country and figuring, you know, well, maybe there'd be an appetite out there for a movie that celebrates American folklore. 
So they start animating a version of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And eventually Walt looks at the footage for, for that that's in progress for the Ichabod escaping from the Headless Horseman and realizes, well, that has the same sort of energy that the Stuffer Toad does. So, you know, they basically throw those two together starting in, in 47. By 48, Walt's attention was already elsewhere. Uh, August of 48 is when the first memo for the Mickey Mouse Park, the thing that Walt wanted to build across the street uh, the studio. All right. But Walt's looking at this and realizes, I'm going to need a lot of money. I'm going to need Snow White money uh-huh. in order to build this. And so he's, he then looks at the other feature films that were tabled after the war. And he's got three that were kind of far along in development. He's got Alice in Wonderland, he's got Peter Pan, and he's got Cinderella. And since Snow White was built around a princess and was a huge success, Walt just sort of like, okay, I think that's the smart choice. We, we go princess again. And so he pulls his A-team, and they're working on Cinderella, which means that Ichabod and Mr. Toad is basically stitched together by the guys who aren't working on Cinderella. Um, okay. That finally comes out in theaters in October 49, does decent business. But six months later, Cinderella hits. So it opens in March. This is before, right. I guess, before like the the summer blockbuster, the idea of a summer yeah. blockbuster? March. In effect, it is, it's fascinating, Len, if you, you know, Snow White went into wide release in February. Pinocchio went into the wide release in February. And for the longest time, that's was Walt's thinking, you know, just that you put an animated feature out in February, which I, I February. don't know, with the kids getting out of school then? Or, I mean, I just, I, I don't entirely understand this. But anyway, again, a Cinderella comes out, makes huge dough. And so Walt now finally has his development money for Disneyland, which, which brings us now to 1953 and the original prospectus for Disneyland, the thing that Walt gave to both corporations like the American Broadcasting Company and individuals like Bob Hope, we've talked about that, Len, uh, you know, about investing in Disneyland. And so in this six-page document, is a, a section that talks about Fantasyland. And this is verbatim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fantasyland is a wonderful land of fairy tales uh, come true within the walls and grounds of a great medieval castle which towers 70 feet in the air. In the middle of the castle grounds stands a magnificent carousel in the theme of King Arthur and his knights. Mm-hmm. In this land, we find the setting of from the fairy tales. We have the ride through Snow White's adventure in the Seven Dwarfs mining car, through the diamond mines, through the enchanted forest, past the cottage of the Seven Dwarfs, reliving Snow White's adventures. We then have the walkthrough, the wonderful experience of Alice in Wonderland, as the white rabbit takes us down the rabbit hole, through the maze of doors, the rabbit's house, past the singing flowers, Dodo Rock, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, and climaxing in the courtroom of the Queen of Hearts. We then have fly through the air with Peter Pan over London, past uh, Big Ben's clock, beyond the second start of the right to Never Never Land, fly over Captain Hook's ship. The uh, Indian encampment, the crocodile, mermaid lagoon, through Skull Rock. And finally, we have Pinocchio Square, with Geppetto's uh, clock shop, Stromboli's puppet show, and a miniature traveling carnival. And Len, that is all, that's exactly how Fantasyland was described circa 1953 to would-be investors. All right, so Snow White, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Pinocchio Square. Right. With a miniature traveling carnival and a puppet show. Okay. All right. Notice anything interesting? No, Mr. Toad. 
Dumbo's well, no, lot, lots of, yeah, no, lots of things. No Dumbo, no, uh, no yeah, carousel. Yeah. You have to appreciate Walt Disney. Cause again, look what he did with Fantasyland. It was deliberately a ride through, a walk through and a fly through. Cause mm-hmm. Walt didn't like repeating himself. And so, you know, the notion is that if you went to Fantasyland, you had three different ride experiences. So Walt, not a fan of, you know, Mr. Toad, you know, found right. it kind of corny and, you know, and, and to be frank, spent a lot of years sweating about, well, how do I get this thing out the door? Um, there's no Mr. Toad in this version of Disneyland. So this, you know, was, this was 1950. 1953, to be exact. But wasn't, wasn't Toad an opening day attraction? Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) and you know, and so what changes between 1953 and 19, two years' time that suddenly Toad is not only in, in, you know, uh, you know what this thing needs? Amphibians, Jim, amphibians. (laughs) Well, yeah, more to the point, Len, it's front and center. In Fantasyland, and in fact, the it is, uh, isn't it? It is. It is in the middle yeah. of Fantasyland, right? Yeah. And I promise you, folks, we'll wrap this up on the second half, which we'll do on our next Disney dish year. But it's worth noting that the original plan, Toad would have been would have beaten Space Mountain into the park as the first indoor roller coaster by mm. thirty years for a character that Walt Disney himself didn't like, thought the stories were awfully corny. How then? Did Toad go on to find prominent places in three Disney parks worldwide? It must be the uh, the story and the experience itself. I can't wait to hear the rest of this. We'll get to it next week, I promise. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Some of those shows will tell you about a secret 1972 memo that Jim found detailing the rides Disney was planning to build in Orlando. And I'm really excited to hear what Jim has found there on next week's regular show. We're going to wrap up the history of Mr. Toad's wild ride. And you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Lentesta, at touringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, rosining up his bow for the 2020 Tennessee Valley Old Time Fiddlers Convention, October 1st through the 3rd of this year in beautiful downtown Athens, Alabama. That's right. It's the Tennessee Valley Old Time Fiddlers Convention in Athens, Alabama. While Aaron's doing that, please go head over to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.